Weirdo Weirdo Bookworms Unite! Unite. Do your reading tastes range from dystopian sci-fi to middle-grade fantasy? Dark psychological thrillers to gory body horror? From YA paranormal swords and sorcery? Extraterrestrials? Murder? Mayhem! And beyond! Then we want to share our love of reading with you! Welcome home. You know what I haven't said in a while? We have a very special episode of Genre Junkies tonight. (laughs) Yay! But but you know what? We really do. Okay, every episode's special. Every episode's special. But we have an author interview for today's, tonight's novel. We get to talk to the one, the only, Alexander Bracken. Yeah. So this is huge. This is, I mean, all of our authors are amazing. Um, Alexander has written some of people's favorite fantasy books, sci-fi fantasy in the last several years, including Lore, The Darkest Minds, The Passenger Series, Prosper Redding Series. She's written a Star Wars book. I mean, like, boom, 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 boom. Just like hit after hit after hit. And tonight's book is... um. Maybe no different. We'll see. We'll see how the genre junkies felt about it. And that book is Silver in the Bone. So don't worry if you want to hear us talk to Alexandra, but you haven't had a chance to read the book yet. The interview is spoiler free. That's right. Now, in the spoiler section, we do ask her a spoilery question. Yes. So, yeah, look forward to that as well. But you absolutely should read this book first. Yeah, I mean, why wouldn't you? I mean, come on. That's the rules. Come on, you got to follow the rules. Yeah, but um, if you're maybe for some reason on the fence or maybe you don't usually read fantasy and you need the genre junkies to tell you more about it, then you are in the right place. <laughs> so I'm not going to talk a whole bunch about unrelated this is and that's because we do have a super packed episode. However... Evil Dead Rise was fantastic. And Best film of the year yes, so far. Yes, and I'm so happy that Yellow Jackets is back. I, I'm living for that. Can I just say one thing about Evil Dead Rise, however? Um, it was actually horrifying. 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 Um, I, I am, you know, I'm a little bit of a baby when it comes to horror, but I'm also... I have fun with horror, but I'm a little bit of a baby. This one really was scary, like genuinely scary for me. So if you kind of avoid ho- like really scary horror movies, uh, this one might actually this one might actually do it do it to you. Uh, I will say it's super gross too, which I love, and I know you love a lot of the grossness too, the squirmies. But there was like a lot of Scott's horror triggers, <laughs> every single one, and it's a relentless horror movie too. So uh, you know, know that, and you're welcome. Okay, so I guess we should talk a little bit about, in a spoiler-free capacity, Silver in the Bone. Tell me all about it. (laughs) Then we're going to do our interview with Alexandra, and then we'll tell you it's time for spoilers so you know when to peace out. Born without a trace of magic, Tansen Lark is no match for the sorceresses and hollowers who populate the magical underground of Boston. But when the only parent she's ever known disappears without so much as a goodbye, she has no choice but to join in their cutthroat pursuit of enchanted relics to keep herself and her brother, Cabal, alive. Ten years later, rumors are swirling that her guardian found a powerful ring from Arthurian legend just before he vanished. A run-in with her rival, Emrys, ignites Tansen's hope that the ring could free Cabal from a curse that threatens both of them. 
But they aren't the only ones who covet the ring. As word spreads, greedy hollowers start circling, and many would kill to have it for themselves. While Emrys is the last person Tamsin would choose to partner with, she needs all the help she can get to edge out her competitors in the race for the ring. Together, they dive headfirst into a viper's nest of dark magic, exposing a deadly secret with the power to awaken ghosts of the past and shatter her last hope of saving her brother. So can I go first? Yeah, of course you can go first. Uh, obsession. Bam! Obsession. Obsession for, for me. Sounds like obsession for you, too. Um, oh, oh, oh you, you assume so, do you? You gave it a bam. Yeah, yeah, obsession. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, this this one ticks a lot of boxes. We've got um, a powerful sibling story. I love that. We've got a dark academia, but not how you think. Mm-hmm. We're we're kind of like think more dark academia, like Indiana Jones. <laughs> like it's yeah. an action adventure. It's kind of a heist. It's fantasy. It gets super dark and spooky ooky sometimes but don't call her a horror writer (laughs) (laughs) i'm calling you out alexander bracket i'm calling you out um yeah and of course then we also have mythology with a heavy focus on celtic and arthurian so this this is just so many things that's like like yes yes this is me this is this is what i signed up for i i i as you said yes it is absolutely an obsession for me as well and what's interesting is like um Arthurian lore and legend isn't um isn't necessarily like my my big passion or anything of course I love it but it's not like oh I'm immediately gravitate gravitated to any kind of you know subject matter that involves around that um it may have actually turned me into a little bit of an Arthurian uh I couldn't do it for person. 17 years and now you're like oh Alexander Bracken says let's I, do it <laughs> I want to learn more I want to find out what things in this are like based on action you know based on pre-existing stories which I feel like a lot of it is and like I said Celtic Celtic Lauren yeah yeah um the the characters are fantastic and interesting and and there's so much to get invested in mm-hmm. the story is fun it's terrifying it, at times in ways that like really makes you again like page turn through it um i i will also say i listen to a lot of this on audiobook and it's outstanding and it is not often that i listen to audiobooks when i am not commuting Mm -hmm. but i sat here on this couch with headphones on and listened to more of it right here in the house as opposed Mm -hmm. to reading it did i not yes is it a full cast or is it just like one person it's one person nice and it's really incredibly well done um i could not be i could not be more obsessed with this book no i i'm so we know this is gonna be a duology i believe i think it's just a duology we only have to wait for one book yeah i think we only have to wait for one i think she's a kind and benevolent overlord i mean that's both good and sad because i wouldn't mind more (laughs) this is definitely a full book it's a long book and i wouldn't change a thing about it Mm -hmm. like i mean it could have been even longer and i would have been even happier yeah, it doesn't feel like it overstates its welcome at all. I can't think of any like 
anything to shave off of it, really. No, if anything, I just want more and more yeah. and more. And, and it is a very long book now that you mentioned it. You're right, it is. And the, um, we didn't even talk about the, the sorceresses. There's like this amazing sorceress, girl power, feminist, matriarchy element. There is uh, wonderful, creepy things like a hand of glory. Um, These are not spoilers. This this is all very early on stuff. If you're into... Um, witchcraft and the occult at all this has like like alexandra really puts in some things for us that's like uh-huh yeah mm-hmm, she knows she researched she knows she's she's the real deal she is the real deal it also has you know little elements of like you know thieving like at the D D table sort of thing it has yeah, a little uh, bit of like indiana party. jones yeah. it has um it has a really like i wouldn't say like detailed but interesting magic system yeah, I don't think it needs to be super detailed. Oh, yeah, I just yeah. I want to clarify. I know you're you know, picky about some people magic. Hear systems. the words magic system and immediately think, oh, rules and 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 things like that, which some of us really love. Yeah, but it, it is so it doesn't have that, but it is very uh, uh, creative and and in some ways like very specific. Yeah. It has a very specific idea of how it works, which is it, neat. Yeah, a great, great cast of characters. Um, there's a character in this in this book, and I bring her up in the interview, so I don't want to say too much about her. But there's a character called Neve, and Neve Nev. I don't know how to say it. Someone help me. It is Neve in the audiobook. Uh, it is Nev in the author's mind. <laughs> Nev in the Campbell. <laughs> yeah. Um. I love her. I saw so, so much of myself in that character. I mean, right? I mean, like, we're like, oh, I we're like twins. For like sure. Twinsies. Um, I highlighted so much of what she said. Like, she likes spooky shit, but she's also, like, cutesy and funny and wise. I was like, oh, my God. And it, it, these are the type of characters, and I've said it before, I'll say it again. I'm having a hard time believing they aren't real. This one more so, even even more so than some of the others that we've said that with. Because and maybe it's just been a while since I've really felt this way. There's a pretty full cast of characters, and not all of them have like huge roles to play or right. many scenes as it as it may be. But everyone like feels so different from the others and have a very specific uh, frame of reference to the world. Yeah. Um, that just makes it feel like just a very rich cast of characters. Um, definitely. So uh, this one ticks a lot of boxes for both of us. And for me, I'm I'm hovering somewhere around the broad to mass. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I'm bleeding, bleeding into the mass section. I really am because I think that this has the possibility to kind of, you know, get people who just like a good book kind of invested. Mm -hmm. However, you know, if you really don't like, if you like hate fantasy, I mean, you probably wouldn't like it, but give it a chance because I think that it really has a lot to offer a reader who loves a fun, fast paced adventure Mm -hmm. with people who you become very invested in. Yeah, for a lot of the same reasons you just said, I'm also kind of waffling between broad and mass, although I'm leaning more towards broad, whereas you seem to be leaning more towards mass. I think, one, it is very much a fantasy book and a dark fantasy book at that, which, you know... I wouldn't say it is the type of fantasy novel like uh, like a Rick Reardon, for example, that yeah. pulls in the masses, but it's also not 
swords and sorcery lord of the rings where it is kind of for a a more dedicated type of you know fantasy reader um the other thing that makes me move it a little bit towards broad is it is very dark oh i love it it borders on horror at times yeah and um uh i guess nothing is sacred it's also funny it is very funny. Yeah. Um. So I think I think broad is a really good place for it to live. I think anybody but the people who just don't 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 like fantasy, like actively dislike fantasy, I think are going to be into and have it. like never liked a fantasy book. Yeah. So um, I want to touch a little bit on the the dark academia thing because oh, the dark academia has been such a a hot button issue. Beloved, people hate it. They find it problematic. They live for it. It's all over the map. Um, but this is the type of dark academia that I was seeking out, where it's academia in, almost in air quotes, you know, because they're not at a school setting. Mm-hmm. This is the real deal. Um, you know, like we keep saying Indiana Jones, but like that, like, um, I don't know, like, um, like supernatural, like the TV, you know, like where it's like they're out there living it, doing it, they're in the field, they're, they're working, but there is this wonderful, beautiful element of library and research and history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've just been like, I've been craving this. No offense to school set things. I'm not, I'm not done with school set things, but, um, but I was ready for like this is what I wanted. Yeah, because like you said, it's it. I, I get what you're saying with the with the academia, but it's it's very non traditional. Whereas it's more the academia part of it is more the research that is required to do some of the things that they're doing, and and there the is knowledge. of course there is of course like a collection of knowledge collected by people um in order to get that, but um. It's kind of it's it's gosh it's like it's like less Harvard Yale more Dungeons and Dragons yeah that's exactly that is yes are we making sense I don't know it makes sense if you've read it that's for damn sure so I have a question for you okay so like I said I didn't give away too much about my favorite character but we haven't talked about this question in a while who was your favorite character in this book I. You just give us a name. You can just give us a name. Flea. Oh, interesting. Yeah. We're gonna have to unpack that. Mm-hmm. Didn't nah, not who I thought it was gonna be. I didn't. I I know. I know. I bet you can even like you'll even know like. But it's okay. I'll tell you. We'll talk about the spoiler section of who I was goddamn convinced was your favorite character. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. Maybe I'll clock you. Maybe I'll be. Maybe I'll zardoz you. You might. You you may you may end up succeeding. <laughs> I have a lot. I, I have to say, I have a lot of favorite. I don't really have like, I have a favorite character, but I don't have a favorite character. Oh yeah, I love I'll the characters in this book so much. Yes, um, because I see a real person in every single one of them. In so, like, even so, some of the tertiary characters have yes. such realized personalities. Yeah. that I just I'm drawn to them. Yeah. Um. I definitely like Tamsin. Like we have like our, our sarcasm and our dryness is definitely like in common, mm-hmm. but I would be treating her exactly how Neve treats her. Yes. <laughs> so it's like really funny. Love Cobble. There's Cable, Cable, 
gosh. I, cabble, rabble, rabble, cabble. This is another one that you're going to hear me like giggle every time I say because it, this is one of those words that like it does not fit around my lips, my teeth, the tip of my tongue. <laughs> I have a really hard time saying it. Um, I don't know. So just laugh at me. It's fine. It's fine. Um, so when do we get to be hollowers? When do we get to join the hollowers guild and go on many adventures? Uh, let's, I would love to do it right now. Uh, I just have to be able to see magic first. <laughs> um, well, if we're gonna want to go and be a hollower and see magic, I think we're gonna need a guide. What do you think? I think so too. I wonder where we could find one. Well, how about the novel's author? The absolutely extraordinary talent, fantasy goddess, Alexandra Bracken. <laughs> All right, please welcome to the show, author of Silver in the Bone, Alexandra Bracken. Hello. 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 Thanks so much for having me. Oh, thank you so thank much you. for joining us. We're so excited. Are we on with Alexandra and Tennyson? Yes. You will hear Tenny in the background playing with one of his toys. I actually, can you hear him? He is being incredibly loud for an eight pound dog. <laughs> he is making his presence known. And we're yeah. delighted. Yeah. It's his sixth sense for whenever. Oh, now he's going to hit the toy again at the door. We're going to have like a drum line going through this. Oh my him? gosh. I love him. He's a diva. He is honestly a total gremlin. Whenever I like have any sort of podcast interview, whenever I'm trying to like record something for my publisher, he is there. He's like, hello, you're not paying attention to me for five minutes. So here I am again. <laughs> <laughs> does he ever does he ever like jump onto your keyboard and type for you while you're writing oh gosh honestly sometimes i wish he would i like at the end of a really long writing day i'm always like can you just come do this for me like i'm the one that's working so hard here come on <laughs> he's like scooch over mother can you just give yeah. me a thousand more words today so i can hit my goal <laughs> He mostly just gives me, like, he's one of those dogs where every once in a while you look at him and you're like, is there a human trapped inside of you? Can you, like, blink twice if, if the witch has cursed you and you are actually a human being? Because sometimes he'll just look at me with, like, and you know exactly what he's thinking. He has, like, those eyes. And it's just this look of, like, utter, like, judgment. Like, should, shouldn't you be working right now? Like, why are you sitting on the couch with me? This is my job. My job is yeah. to relax. Your job is to write. How can you afford all my luxuries, mother? Yes. I know. Yeah, exactly. He's like, how, how will you ever keep me in, like, bow ties if you, like... <laughs> Little Halloween costumes and sweaters when it gets a little chilly here in Phoenix, which is one month out of the year. So. <laughs> if if anybody listening today has not seen Tenny, you can see him on Instagram uh, on Alexander's page. And he is just devastatingly handsome little guy. Oh, he is so cute. And um, oh, my gosh, sorry. I could talk about <laughs> he's like my child. I could talk about him all day, every day. But um, he he suddenly got this like... Um, what do I want to call a level up in terms of like his monthly grooming? Like this dog gets groomed more than I do. <laughs> um, but now he like, doesn't like the sound of like clippers turning on. He like gets very defensive and is reactive when they turn the clippers on. So now he has to get like hand scissored haircuts. No. Yes. He has to like get a hand scissored haircut. He's perfectly calm. And like, he knows when he gets a bad haircut, he hasn't had one in a while, but he's like that kind of dog. God, he is yeah. human. He is cursed by a sorceress. I think so. 
<laughs> so speaking speaking of Tenny Tennyson, um, mythology plays a prominent role in your books. When did you first fall in love with mythology, and was there a specific pantheon that stood out? Oh my gosh, yes. So I have been joking a lot that I feel like. Growing up, you have like the horse book girls and you have like the babysitter <laughs> club. Actually, I'm really dating myself with the babysitters. No, that's me. Club. I was all those bitches and yeah. the goosebumps girl. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I was also a goosebumps girly. Um, but I was like a Greek myth girly. Like I was one of those. And there are many of us. We are legions yes. apparently. Um, so Greek myth was sort of Greek myths were like my entry point into like mythology and fairy tales. And my mom had given me Dallaire's book of Greek myths. Um, if you don't instantly recognize that name, you will recognize the book because this is sort of a You class. and me, Alexander, that was my book. That was my introduction as a child too. And it's like, yes. Yeah, it's so like, I love paging through it as an adult too, because the illustrations are so beautiful and they're in such like bright, almost like pastel colors and like awful things are happening in the images. Like (laughs) it just, it seems so contrary. Um, I love that contrast though. But my mom had given me that book as a way to kind of start introducing our, like my Greek heritage to me and my siblings and I obviously are included in that. But, and I think she just kind of forgot how dark Greek mythology actually is. Like you have, you know, people getting cursed just because they you know, displease the gods, you have children being eaten by their parents, like a couple of stories about that, which is kind of amazing. (laughs) Just like heroes who rise, heroes who fall. And I I was just very um, fascinated kind of by the inner darkness of those stories. It felt really true to me um, as a kid for whatever reason. I think I was like one of those kids who just like into dark things. (laughs) So good, good. You're our type of kid. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so that was really my entry point. And then I kind of went from there into, you know, like fairy tales and other mythologies. The one I'm like really trying to learn more about now is Norse mythology, because I don't know that much about it beyond like the very basics of it. So that's my that's one of my summer projects. Oh, that's awesome. So since you said you're getting into Norse mythology, how how do you what is your process to actually investigate and learn about these different pantheons and these different um, histories? Do you go to the Hollower's Guild library? Is what we're asking. (laughs) Oh, my gosh, I would love that. I like I really wrote my dream library into Silver and the Bone where you have these basically you get what they call immortalities, which are essentially they're sort of like part grimoires, part like diaries of all of these sorceresses who are like, so like they can get a little spicy, like they're really just like fun and they're very, like, <laughs> I don't know, the sorceresses all have such big personalities that I would like love to read more of the immortalities. But then you also have just this enormous collection of folklore and fairy tale because the treasure hunters in the book are looking for these legendary objects. Um, so for me, it's really just like going back to the stories and like reading different versions of the stories. That's one of the things I love about Greek mythology is that there are so many different iterations kind of of the same stories and then sort of then moving into like, how does it tie into the history of that region? Because myths serve usually two functions. It's like to explain the world and to instruct you on how to behave (laughs) as a person. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. I'm I was a history major. I was a history and English double major. So like anytime I can bring in that like historical context, it makes me very happy. And I think it really adds something to the myth. Well, that's awesome. I love it. It's very, um, it's very back to your roots. It's yeah. very old school. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about your characters in your books. Of course, we're, we're specifically, you know, in this episode talking about Silver and the Bone, but I find that all of your your characters are beautifully fleshed out. And I was wondering, are you the type of author whose characters, quote unquote, talk to them and demand to be written? They just feel so real to me. Oh, thank you. That's so nice of you to say. That is absolutely my goal with every book. Um, I tend to write very um, character focused stories. And which is so funny, because my dad was the one my dad was like a Star Wars collector. He was the one who um, like, I cannot remember a time growing up that he wasn't reading some sort of like mass market fantasy paperback. And so he was someone who like read fantasy for like world building and plot. And so when when I like shared my first book with him, which was like a little fantasy, he was just like, there's just so many emotions. (laughs) It's like, he was like, he was just like not on board with that. And I was like, no, you like write for, and like you, I read for character and for emotion. So that's really important to me. And um, they do talk to me a little bit. It's usually, I like know when I am ready to write the book is when I can hear that character's voice very distinctly in my mind, which sounds a little odd to say maybe, but if you are a writer or even a reader, like if you're a reader and you can kind of pick up on the character's voice, I always feel like that is a good book. That's a sign of a great writer that the voice is really coming through and you can imagine it as you're reading. Oh, I love that. And um, listeners, uh, you will soon know, I'm going to talk about, Neve in this book. Neve or Nev, I can never say it right, but I cannot believe she's not a real person and we're not best friends. We are so similar. We are so similar. I'm like, yeah, she's real. I can call her. I'm going to get her on the horn right now. I am delighted that you love Neve. Um, In my head, I constantly switch back and forth between Neve and Nev, and I feel like that's a sign that I grew up mostly in the 90s because of Matt Campbell. So I constantly... (laughs) <laughs> exactly. I like constantly have to correct it in my head and I have to like take a beat before I say the name me. Yes. <laughs> yes. 90s people. We are here. <laughs> now That's interesting that you don't feel like you have control over the pronunciation of your character's name. Is that a is that a project a product of a choice that you made or just a product of the way that it worked out? It's just a product of the way it worked out. There was one character um, in my Darkest Mind series where her name is the way you would normally say this name in like, it's a, it's derived from Spanish. So it's Vita. But when I was in college in Virginia, the only person I knew with this name was, you know, not of that descent and she pronounced it Vita. So I spent the entire Darkest Mind series like at war with my own brain thinking that Vita, I kept calling Vita Vita and like, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just was like back and forth. So there's some others always one character in every book or there's like a word in the book that I pronounce very differently in my head than it's like actually how it's pronounced. It's you guys must know too because you are big readers. That oh yeah. Sometimes you're like you come upon a word and it's about to come out of your mouth and you're like I've read this word 10,000 times but I've never said it aloud or heard yes. it spoken aloud and you just roll the dice on if you're right. <laughs> That's why you should never make fun of someone for mispronouncing a word because it means that they're a reader. Yes, that's exactly how I feel too. So speaking of Star Wars, we are massive, massive Star Wars fans here at Genre Junkies. We actually invented something we called the Star Wars sob, which is when you're so overwhelmed with your love of Star Wars that you cry. Um, So you wrote a Star Wars book, and I know you might not be able to tell us this, but... 
are you are you ever going to write another Star Wars book? Oh, I would love to. I've had um, a couple different opportunities come up, and it's never worked out with the scheduling of my original fiction. I know it's been really huh. like I'm like, please give me something to work on. Um, just like. And like the authors who ended up writing those books are amazing and I, the books turned out wonderfully. So it all happens for a reason. I would love to get back to writing Star Wars, although there's so much pressure attached to it as someone who grew up loving Star Wars. Like you guys, I was like post Greek mythology. My next phase of I only want to read this was Star Wars expanded universe books. That's I read that exclusively. Preach, <laughs> like, preach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ages nine to like 13 years old. That's all I wanted to read. I would go into my dad's office and just pull all the books like off of his shelf and read them one by one. Oh, the Young Jedi was where I really thrived. That's yes! where I found my stride. Yes. Oh my God. I'm so happy that you also love those books. Sometimes I'll bring them up in conversation and people just stare at me and I'm like, yeah. how did you not read these books? Those books <laughs> were my whole personality. Yes, Jason, <laughs> Jaina, what's up? We see you. I'm sure they're listening. I'm sure they're listening. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you you said that you, you feel like you're ready to re- write the book when you can hear the characters' voices. And you've implied that this book has actually been you've been mulling this over for a while. How long has this book really been in your head? Oh my gosh. So the very like initial seed of this idea for silver in the bone came 10 years ago ish. I think it's maybe technically 11 years ago. So it really has taken, and that's unusual for me. Usually I'll get an idea. I brainstorm it for a month or two. And then I, it's like, I'm off. I am immediately kind of ready to write once I have various pieces ready. But this one, it was like I had um, kind of like an interesting backstory and I had this interesting mythology that I had stumbled upon in like very strange way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I always say that I accidentally backed into Arthurian legend with this book because <laughs> I didn't set out necessarily to write an Arthurian legend book. Um, so I had like the folklore, but I couldn't figure out the right story to kind of weave it in to. And I didn't have the characters yet. It took a really long time, but I can give you that whole story. It is, it will take you on a journey. <laughs> I'm I'm open to it. <laughs> You're open to it. <laughs> okay, so this the seed of the story originated about ten year ten. Oh gosh, I'm like, what year is it? I'm having that pandemic brain where pretty much all of 2020 through um, 2022. I'm like, it was a long yeah. decade. It was. Yeah, <laughs> it's like it's the same year. That's it. <laughs> Um, so gosh, this would have been like 20, 2011, 2012. So it's been, you know, over 10 years. And, um, my dad had recently been diagnosed with terminal cancer. And one of the things that he and I shared beyond our love of like fantasy and sci-fi and Star Wars was a love of history. And he was, he was telling me just kind of randomly that like one of the things he always regretted not looking into was our family genealogy, because that was a subject that had always interested in, interested him. But it was one of those things where it's so easy not to get to it and not do anything with that curiosity. So I was like, I volunteer as tribute. I will do, I will do our family tree for us. I will look into mom's side of the family too, as much as I can. I am sort of forever blocked, not forever blocked, but I think certain branches of our family trees, depending on where our ancestors are from, it becomes a lot more difficult to find information. So like the Greek side of my mom's family, I think the church that held the birth 
in death records like burned down. So oh, aside from all the records being in Greek, I don't know how far back I can potentially get with that. Um, but with my dad's side of the family, it turned up all of these kind of like interesting, I mean, like the English sides of both families were absolutely the easiest to trace back. And a lot of people had already done their family trees. And you, it's interesting, like when you're on a site like Ancestry.com, you can kind of pull in the work that other people have already done, mm-hmm. which is a pro tip if you're interested. At this point, I feel like somebody has already pretty much done your family tree past like 17th century and earlier. <laughs> If you can get back there, you're probably good all the way back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, And it's kind of fascinating to think about, like, the fact that so many other families just kind of branched off from your own. But it was my mom's side of the family that actually turned up the most interesting slash um, kind of hilarious ancestor. His name, he's something, he's not a direct ancestor. He's something like my eight times great uncle. His name was Squire Richard Cabell. I was like, wow, squires did exist. Cabell. Cabell, yep. If you have read Silver in the Bone, you know that's the name I picked for Tamsin's brother. Um, It is a name that's been in our family for a really long time. And so it was exciting for me to finally hit the Cabell, like where we had Cabell as the surname, because I was like, finally, this is like where this name comes from, because my uncle had that name. My grandfather has that name. Like, um, I was like ready to figure out where this name entered our family tree. And so Squire Richard Cabell has his own Wikipedia entry and if you have like a couple minutes, who has a couple minutes to spare during their very busy day? <laughs> the Wikipedia entry for it is really funny because it's written very much like it's all fact. I almost think, do you guys mind if I just read from it? Do it. Oh, do it. Because I don't think I can do it justice otherwise. And I think you guys will really appreciate this ancestor. This is awesome. Are you okay. kidding me? Oh my gosh. So he lived in like... He died in 1677, so that's sort of when he was around. Um, and he was in uh, the parish of Buckfistley, I think that's how you say that, at the southern southeastern edge of Dartmoor in Devon. Okay, Squire Richard Cabell, known to posterity as, quote, Dirty Dick, lived <laughs> hunting and was what in those days was described as, quote, a monstrously evil man. <laughs> he gained his reputation for, amongst other things, Again, this is all written as fact in this Wikipedia entry. Immorality and having sold his soul to the devil. (laughs) There was a rumor that he had murdered his wife, Elizabeth Fowle, um, which, spoiler alert, he didn't, because I guess she was mentioned in his will after he died, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. On the 5th of July, 1677, he died and was laid to rest in the tomb. On the night of his interment, the night of his interment saw a phantom pack of hounds come baying across the moor to howl at his tomb. From that night on, he could be found leading the phantom pack across the moor, usually on the anniversary of his death. Uh, Side note, the other version of the story, because there are a couple versions of the story, amazingly, is that he was chased to death by the phantom pack of hounds. (laughs) (gasps) Which I think I prefer that version of the story, because he might have been out, like, chasing some poor maiden, and then the phantom pack of hounds, like, swept in and took him out. (laughs) 
Yeah. And so, um, okay, if the pack were not out hunting, they could be found ranging around his grave, howling and shrieking. And in an attempt to lay his soul to rest, the villagers built a large building around the tomb and to be doubly sure, placed a huge slab over the top of it. So like, come in there. And you can actually still visit his tomb if you happen to be in England and you are near Devon. You can go visit the the parish of Buckingham. Oh my God. God. I wish you could see our faces. We are like, we're we're eating this up. Okay, so he's like, wild hunt. How did the Baskervilles, all the things. Actually, this is supposedly one of the potential um, inspirations for the Hounds of Baskerville. The Hound of the Baskervilles. Gosh, Chills. I like struggle with that. Chills. <laughs> with that title. <laughs> yeah, it's another one. I, even though it's my favorite Holmes book, I chills. <laughs> chills. <laughs> oh my but, god, that is so cool. Yeah, so I read this and I was like, "What an illustrious ancestor to have!" This explains so much about my personality. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and like in reality, this guy was probably just like a terrible landlord and he was probably like flirting or like trying to get with everybody's wives or just hunting on land that didn't belong to him. But it is, I I like love my mental fan fiction of this is that the villagers just hated his guts so much. They were like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to just make sure that everybody who comes later thinks that he got carried away by the wild hunt or like, we're going to say he sold his soul to the devil. That's our revenge. But this, yeah, it sent me down that whole rabbit hole of looking into like black dog folklore and the wild hunt. And some of the earliest stories about King Arthur from the Welsh tradition kind of cross into that in a really surprising way. So I had all of these pieces and then I just had to wait for the right story, the right setup to arrive. And that took a good decade. So that is the very long (laughs) answer to that question i my mind is blown and i (laughs) the the uh the amount of research i'm going to be doing into this now you've sent me down a rabbit hole (laughs) so thank you (laughs) love it oh and if somebody is in recorded history is having sold their soul to the devil uh they can sit next to me because (laughs) i'm all about that i'm all about that life no seriously yeah. So now, so now you you finally have the idea, and you've got the idea in your head, and you start writing it. What is your favorite part of the entire writing process? Oh, that is a good question. I mean, I could answer this in a couple different ways. So one part I love, but I also like am always so anxious about is when readers finally get to read it and I start getting the reaction to the story, good or bad. (laughs) (laughs) The bad less so, but like when I get the like emotional reaction, especially with like the ending of this book or the big twist in this book, that is like such a satisfying, wonderful feeling to me. But really, I also just love the very beginning when you get that idea and it feels like a light has gone off in your brain and suddenly all of these things start coming together and you sort of are figuring out who the characters are. You're meeting them for the first time. But I also love when you reread the first draft of the story and you start seeing the ways that your brain, like just at the very back of your mind, it's been like working out all of these little connections that maybe you weren't even totally conscious of as you were writing. And somehow the theme has come together in a way you might not have expected. So I always say, as much as I want to have control over my story, there is this sort of magical element to it where the story is going to like do what it wants to do. And my brain, <laughs> very my subconscious is going to help in whatever way it possibly can. Oh, that's really cool. We we heard this term from another author about a year ago. Are you a plotter or a pantser? Ooh, I am what I call a headlights plotter. So this is 
a term that I just heard recently, and I can't remember who said it. But so if you're a plotter, you're an outliner. If you're a pantser, you wing it. And then I consider myself a headlights plotter, which means I know generally where I'm going. So I have to know where the story begins and where the story ends and more specifically who the main character is at the beginning of the story and who they are at the end. And I need to know the big like midpoint because it's usually some sort of twist that really like kind of turns the story on its head and or changes the way the main character sees themselves and understands the world. So those are three very important moments in the story that I have to have nailed down But I really like to give myself a lot of freedom to explore and to do the first draft as like a discovery draft. That's really what I would say pantsing is. It's just discovery writing. You're going on on that journey with the characters. Um, And I find having at least a general roadmap gives you enough structure, at least for me, to be able to (laughs) navigate without getting too lost. And what I'll usually do is at the end of a writing day or, you know, when I'm about to go to bed or something, I'll have a little notebook by my bed and I'll like do a rough outline of what I'm going to work on the next day. And that helps me stay productive, helps keep me on track for like meeting scene goals to make sure I make my deadlines <laughs> and, all, and all of that. So headlights plotter, by that I just mean that I generally know where I'm going. I have a very rough map. And then I'll do just an outline of like whatever I'm going to work on next in the book. One of the things that I want to point out that you just said that I found was really interesting is when you talked about having the structure of like the beginning, the middle and the end, you talked about it being where the character is at the beginning, Mm -hmm. the middle and the end. And I think that that is actually a rather unique answer that we've had on this show. I really like that. Yeah. I mean, I, my very intuitive process from when I first launched into my career, because I had never actually, I think I had taken maybe one creative writing course in college that was for fiction versus nonfiction. So I had like one nonfiction creative writing course and one fiction. Um, Otherwise, I was very much self-taught through fan fiction, through just reading. I think we internalize story structure that way. If you are a voracious reader, you have internalized it (laughs) and you now have expectations about genres and all of that. So that was just the way I was naturally writing. But I was having these enormous revisions for the Darkest Mind series. That was my first series that came out. And I was like, I need to go back and teach myself more about crafts. One, so I can actually articulate my process. And it's not just like, oh, I just kind of sit down and do whatever. And I want to just have, you know, when I'm really stuck in a story, I want to be able to have that foundation of story craft to fall back on. So I almost swung too hard in the other direction. And I tried really hard to be like an outliner, but it killed a lot of the excitement and um, made it a little boring to write because I knew everything that was going to happen. Some people really like and need that full control over the story. And I kind of have to let I have to meet the story halfway. But I had never actually heard someone articulate that about the character arc before I read um, Anatomy of a Story by John Truby. This is my like one of my favorite writing books. It's not a book that I would recommend to people who are just really starting out on their author journey or their writer journey, because it is a book that will like kind of twist your brain into <laughs> pretzel knots. Like it really, it's a craft book that forces you to really think about story structure. And I think Truby's book is technically meant more for screenwriting, but obviously there's a lot of crossover between screenwriting and novel writing in terms of story structure. It's all 
sort of the same storytelling craft. Um, and he recommends that, or he, as he explains, rather, your plot is really built off of your main character's arc. And that's actually how I was intuitively writing my books. And then now it's a way I more consciously write my books, if that makes sense. So it's every, you know, plot point, every like turning point within the story is forcing your character to demonstrate whether or not that they, whether or not they've changed and they have become who they need to become along the way. So I think it's a, it's a really great way if, you are a writer and you are struggling to bring in more emotion and to make sure that your characters aren't just reacting. It's a great way of thinking about story to make sure that the main character is actually moving the action rather than reacting to the action of the story. That is awesome and some great insight for any of our listeners that are writers out there too, and a fascinating look at your process. So thank you for (laughs) sharing that. Yes. Okay. Anatomy of a Story by John Truby. He also, you guys may be interested in this, just wrote a book called Anatomy of Genres, which is an actual brick. (laughs) It is one of those, I got, I received it in the mail and I was like, oh no, John Truby, I can't like commit to just reading this all the way through. This is going to like break my brain. So I kind of like- Don't do it to me, John. Don't do it to me. I kind of thumb through it and I kind of jump between the different sections depending on what I'm working on to read and um, just- read his thoughts about each genre and like the plot points he thinks are really necessary when you're writing within a certain genre and all of that. It also helped me identify why reviewers kept saying like professional reviewers, trade reviewers kept saying that Silver and the Bone had horror in it. And I was like, I didn't write a horror book. I wrote a fantasy book. Uh (laughs) I was like, thank you, John Truby for illustrating that I know nothing about the horror genre. He's like, Nick, I'll be there for you forever, Alex. Um, <laughs> so actually, that was my next question. We know that you have a little bit of a spooky background with the goosebumps and, and all of that good stuff. And your books um, are often quite dark at times, and you don't shy away from horror elements. Do you have any plans to write some straight up horror novels for us spooky people? You guys are going to be very unimpressed with this, but I am such a weenie when it comes to anything horror. I almost, I cannot engage. (laughs) So it constantly surprises me that I end up writing things that are very horror or very horror adjacent. (laughs) I don't know if it's just because I'm thinking more about horror in terms of like these like existential, like dread and confronting, you know, the darkness inside of ourselves, which I think the horror, the horror genre does so well. Um, but the monster is oftentimes not the monster that you are doing battle with or trying to escape, but the monster inside of humanity. Um, (laughs) so I was like, Oh wow. I, I guess I do sort of write some horror into my books all the time. Um, but I was really scarred by the experience of going to see the ring in movie theaters. And since then, yes, it is really like, I got to like work. I really do not watch horror movies. I don't tend to read a lot of horror books. I'm trying to remember the last horror book I read proper horror book. Um, but I always, the, I kind of, if it's like mixed with another genre, I can do it. So like I'm watching yellow jackets right now and I, (gasps) Would my obsession that. yes so good so good i was so mad there wasn't a new episode <laughs> i was like, hell <laughs> it's like oh come on um, rude so rude um so that's sort of like mixed with this you know 
almost I want to say it's like a little bit fantasy you kind of get that like shadowy is it fantasy or is it just psychological like I can do that but you know straight up horror I really struggle with so maybe maybe one day I would never say never chances are I will probably accidentally write a horror novel when ah! an editor will be like congratulations you've written a horror novel and I'll be like what <laughs> Well, I'm going to call you Alexandra Bracken, the reluctant horror writer, and I will keep my little horror candle lit on my horror altar that that you'll come home to us. <laughs> I'll try. I'll try. I promise. I got to like really start engaging with the genre more. I know there's so ma- there's so much good storytelling out there and I got to like suck it up and be a big girl. But like when you're when you have kind of like a creative brain, when your brain is just prone to over like overactive imagination, it's really hard to watch horror and then try to like get it out of your system. That was what was so hard about watching The Ring was afterwards I was like, God, no, I have to think about this for weeks. I have to be, I have to sleep with my lights on. I can't walk by a television because I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> So anything really scary, um, my brain will take and like bring into my real life with me. So I have to be like, <laughs> it's so bad. I'm such a baby. You know, it's okay. Cause I am not the creepy one of the pair of us. And <laughs> That'd be me. Uh, the fact that you can handle that you can handle uh, yellow jackets. I cannot. So <laughs> you're, you're doing all right. I do. Um, I do cover my face sometimes. I will like fully cover my eyes when I'm like, I'm just going to wait until the creepy music ends. It's, but it's like creepy music all the time. So sometimes yes! it's cute. That like choir of women going like, oh, oh. it's just so tense. It was just, it's just so it just creates so much anxiety. But see, that's why you're such a good writer is because you can't turn off your imagination. <laughs> yeah, it just torments me casually on a daily basis. <laughs> Alexander Bracken, The Tortured Soul. I love it. <laughs> so I have a question for you. And um, as readers, as writers, uh, we love to, when we get a chance, you know, plug and share some of our favorite things. So we would like to ask you to please... Uh, just go ahead and and word vomit for a moment. Any of your favorite books, TV shows, movies uh, that people need to be enjoying, either stuff you've done recently, favorites ever, plug away. Oh, my gosh. OK, so obviously Yellow Jackets. That's my personality currently. It's just <laughs> yes. fully Yellow Jackets. I was so late to get on this train and I'm late to get on Succession. I'm finally watching Succession. I don't know why I was, I think I just like hated everybody so much, which is kind of the point. <laughs> but in, when I tried to watch it when the first season was airing, I was like, wow, I genuinely cannot get on board with any of these characters. And now I sort of appreciate it that I can't. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> so I've been watching Succession. I've been watching um, The Diplomat which is not science fiction or fantasy. Sometimes when I'm working on something that's sci-fi or fantasy, I like don't want to engage with the genre. Yeah. I want to keep my brain a little bit clear. The Diplomat on Netflix was really good. Um, I'm so sad. I really want to see the Dungeons and Dragons movie. We loved it. Okay, good. Yeah, I loved it. I was so like, I was on book tour kind of when it was released in theaters and then it seemed to have a short theatrical window. So I was like, Oh, I want to see it. Um, but in terms of what I'm reading, I have been having a lot of um, problems with my eye. I like had two retina detachments last year in my left oh, eye. Oh my and then um, I just had sur- <laughs> just had cataract surgery. <laughs> oh my God. I'm 36. So like every, every single time I go into an eye appointment, they're like, you're here for, you're here for your cat- cataract surgery, cataract oh. appointment. I was like, 
yes, I am. Don't judge um, me. Yeah. So I've been, I like jokingly said that the sequel to Silver in the Bone should be dedicated to my right eye because that right eye did all of the work last year, basically. Uh-huh. Yeah. So my retina detached right about this time last year. So it was like this whole journey of like writing with one eye. And like, oh man. Yeah. So needless to say, I've not been doing like a ton of reading just because of that. It like, takes a little bit of the joy out of and trying to listen to more audiobooks. But then I feel this pressure to listen to like marketing audiobooks because now to be an author, you also have to be a marketer and you're <laughs> a publicist and a video director and editor. <laughs> oh my God. You're such a millennial, just like us. I know. nothing can just be fun. <laughs> exactly. And I like in between drafts of books, I like to listen to like craft books. So right now I am going to listen when I go on my walk today, I'm going to listen to a video about the snowflake method of plotting. Cause I just like seeing how other people write their books and conceptualize their books. And sometimes you can pull an interesting nugget from that. But I did recently read a book called house of Marion by JL, which is another YA fantasy with like a really cool, fun magic system that reminds me a little bit of like how shadow in the bone, the Grisha work. Everyone kind of has like a little bit of a specialty. Um, but it's kind of a really fun, interesting take on a magic school. And it combines like cotillion culture, which does not seem like it would be the most obvious blending, but it works so well. Um, and gosh, what else have I been reading recently? I feel like I should get recommendations from you guys because I am so behind the curve. Every Tuesday, I try to help promote all of the new releases. And I'm like, oh my God, I haven't read like any of these. Help. Oh no. <laughs> oh, no. I know. I feel so bad. I feel like I should be able to like come out with a million different things I've read and watched recently. But I'm mostly just like when I'm on deadline, which I am just like perpetually on deadline. I'm like, I'm so tired. I can't read anything other than like the words I have written on in Microsoft Word today. <laughs> <laughs> well, Alexander, I wanted to not only thank you, but I wanted to give a little bit of a shout out to your dad because the more I hear about him, he sounds like such um such a genre junkie, such a why we started this podcast. Scott and I were raised on mass market paperback horror uh sci-fi and fantasy, you know, buying them at the grocery store and he just sounds like one of the real ones. Yeah, he really was. He was just like the best guy ever. And he had this, it was a really funny dynamic with him because he was such like, he worked for one of the big banks. Like he was such like a corporate guy, but then he would always have like, because he was a star Wars collector, he would always have like star Wars in his office, mm-hmm. like different, like, Oh man. Yeah. So I grew up going to like star Wars conventions with him. He had a relationship with um, like all of the Toys R Us's that were like in the general vicinity to the point that sometimes they would like let him into the back room to look for. Yeah. It was like that sort of like really fun, interesting childhood. Um, And so I like it always makes me a little bit sad that he doesn't get to see all of this like amazing new Star Wars content that we get. Because I think he would love especially the Mandalorian because he was also so big on Westerns. Uh, and who oh, it's just like he would be delighted by Grogu, like just completely oh. delighted. Um, but I I say like and this is, you know, I've connected with so many readers whose parents. Star Wars is kind of like a cultural inheritance now at this point, And it's mm-hmm. passed down kind of through families. And so agreed. Um, I meet people who have also lost their parent or their loved one who introduced them to Star Wars. And we can really connect on that level. But I always say like our loved ones 
get the freedom of like going to visit on set and they can like be first in line in the movie theater and they can see all of this content. That's how I like to sound. Oh, I love that so, yeah, so much. I He really though, I, it was, yeah, every summer he was such a big Lord of the Rings stan. Like he was a stan before I knew what that word meant. <laughs> like he would read, oh my gosh, he would reread the trilogy and then the appendices Every summer when we would go up to northern Arizona to escape the heat a little bit. Um, And he had like all of this like like way before I feel like Lord of the Rings and Star Wars kind of were not cool for so long. And then they became cool. Amen. (laughs) Yeah, they kind of like turned the corner and became cool and became something that we were all able to geek out about. But um, he was someone who was like in that decidedly uncool Lord of the Rings era, (laughs) had like Frodo lives memorabilia, (laughs) had um, one of Bilbo's songs as his like senior year high school quote. So yeah, he... I think as much as all of the parents out there who are listening, as much as you can kind of just even just demonstrate your love of reading genre by, you know, always having a book in hand, always encouraging your kids to read. It's so important. And that's how you pass it on without like forcing them into loving something you do. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Oh, that's awesome. That's that's our that's our ministry. <laughs> that is our genre bibliophile ministry. Oh man, that's great. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. This has been an absolute ball for us. <laughs> Thank you so much. You are so our type of person. I love chatting with you guys. Thank you so much for having me. Hopefully, we can circle back and chat again in the future. Oh, yes, Tenny, I love that Tenny finally starts barking again. Yeah, like I agree. He's like, me too. Don't forget about me. Never. We could never. Well, we will take you up on that. We look forward to talking to you again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, Bookworm Buddy, don't forget, subscribe, rate, and review. And while you're at it, find us on Instagram at Genre Junkies. Okay, this is officially the spoiler section. You've made it. So if you don't want to gush and rant and rave about the book with us, you're in the wrong spot. But we'll just I'll just say <laughs> that was a great interview. We so enjoyed it. We had such a good time. Oh, my face hurt from smiling. What is it with every single author being awesome? Yeah. Every single author is, is awesome. Because and, there and every are single people, one's the best one ever. There are people. We're book people. They're book people. It ju- it's love. It's a love connection. Um, You know what? I think before we go too far, now that we've given people the spoiler warning, let's put in the, the spoiler question. So I have a question that we're going to put in our spoiler section. With how much you seem to love mythology and these histories and these settings, you seem to have no trouble destroying anything that is precious. How do you get to that point? (laughs) I like, oh my gosh, I love that you asked this question. And I'm wondering if it's related to King Arthur himself. Is that kind of where this originated from or no? King Arthur and just the whole island and just everything that like, that's true. <laughs> true. So I, I just think, I think my brain works. Like I don't want to write something that people have necessarily read before. Uh-huh. And I also like breaking things to see like how it is shattered and what people do when it's breaking, breaking things like Scott's mind when he read this book. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh man, I sometimes it's almost like a little bit of um, I think it's called bathos humor. Um, I don't know that much about bathos humor, but it's kind of that like it's the humor that they constantly deploy in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where it is like very abrupt. And it like destroys like any sort of precious moment. It's the humor that you would find kind of in Guardians of the Galaxy. And that is humor that I am very attracted to and love writing. And so there is a moment in the book where they're like watching where King Arthur, one of the part of Arthurian legend, if you are not as familiar with it, is that when King Arthur is killed, he's sort of brought into this like hand wavy, like half asleep, half dead state of being. And he's brought into Avalon and he is said to be there still waiting for the day that England may need him again. And and, like anyone wants a zombie king. There's questions about the actual king. Does anyone want a zombie king? (laughs) Like, (laughs) um, and so in the book, there's this moment where they are like watching this temple, trying to figure out how they're going to defeat the big bad in the book. And, like King Arthur basically just becomes like the slab of meat to the monsters. That's it's very so annoying. brutal. <laughs> I, yeah, and it's like I laughed out loud when I wrote the scene because as awful as it is, I just like got so much satisfaction out of like that bathos humor <laughs> moment of like, oh, that did not go the way I was expecting it to at all. Like it was so startling that you almost have to kind of like laugh a little bit. It's just that like human reaction of like. Oh my God. Um, we relate to this we relate very uh, much to this and so in the book to avalon they think is suffering some sort of terrible curse it's really like rotting away everything is dead at that point they were really trying so hard to find a way to save just even the idea of the island and i had originally wanted to set the book in avalon because like in arthurian legend uh it's sort of like the original fan fiction where different authors over different ages have sort of picked it up and run with it. For real, for real, yeah. Yeah, and kind of focused on different characters, decided to bring more of a Christian element into it with the Grail. Like, there are so many different takes on it. Um, And so, but one of the more universal aspects of Arthurian legend is that it's so focused on the idea of brotherhood. And I was like, well, what about sisterhood? Like, what about Avalon? This place that everybody keeps hinting at is like beautiful and amazing and mystical and has magic. Like, why does no one ever write about Avalon? (laughs) Like, what about that? What about the priestesses? Um, And so I tried to use existing pieces of, you know, what's already been written about Avalon, which really is not much. And I was like, I'm going to write about Avalon. I'm going to center the book on the idea of sisterhood instead of brotherhood. And then I was like, but what if? There's always that like dark gremlin in my brain that's like, but what if? Avalon is actually not like this beautiful island. It's a horrible place to go. And all of these characters are fighting to survive. I can never write just like a nice, happy story. It always has to be like, but what about peril? Like, it's so. Yeah, it's bad. I guess it's a horror show in my brain constantly. But um, yeah, I just really wanted to, I had the total freedom basically to create Avalon from the ground up. And naturally, my brain chose violence. (laughs) (laughs) Violence and and darkness. So (laughs) she woke up and chose violence. (laughs) Exactly. Because I also think 
sometimes I want to play with like the feel of the legends and the mythology too. Like in my book Lore, which is a contemporary fantasy that uses Greek mythology, I wanted to capture that like very big epic feeling that you get with the Greek myths where the stakes are so high and everything is so extra dramatic and heroes live in this like morally gray zone. I wanted to kind of accurately capture that feeling. But there's always kind of this gloss to Arthurian legend where, you know, you get like the knights in shining armor and you get the beautiful maidens. I mean, there is darkness in Arthurian legend for sure, but I really wanted to just like dull that brightness a little bit and to play with the idea of like the story versus the reality, like the legend versus the of it. I, I really appreciate that. I totally picked it up and thank you for, for sharing that insight here in the spoiler section. <laughs> My pleasure. So I did some highlighting in this book. And as we go through talking about it, I definitely want to share some of my notes. So first of all, I I call shenanigans that Nash is not your favorite character. Really? Okay, well, first of all, that you, is not who I thought. First you were of all, say. you always love the guide you always love the mentor you always love that character especially when it's a rough around the edges kind of gruff grizzly dude which is like which is like kind of like you except for that you're also a silly goose so it's like you usually like the zeds okay the merlins you're okay i mean the thing is you're right and you're along the lines of who I thought you were going to say was my favorite, but Nash is in like one scene, oh, one and a half plenty, scenes, and he's referenced one and a half scenes. Like you have such a good picture of who this man is. Yeah, but who who is the other kind of mentor character in this book? Not f- Bedivere. Absolutely, you loved him. I loved okay, him. The minute M effort stepped on the page, I threw down my book and I said, don't trust it. I mean, I, I, I don't I, trust him. I have to admit I did too. I knew like, I did not expect it. I did not expect him to be bad in the way that he was bad. I, I thought he was just going to be like the lead acolyte. Not that he like was death. Yeah. Um, and when, no, yeah. Uh, so that was, but yeah, I felt like this seems kind of like, especially there was a scene when he said, L- you know, let me talk to Cabell alone yeah i was like, I'm like flags. no 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 no, no, no bring no. it back you don't want him talking to cow alone that's a bad idea <laughs> and here's the thing is like i don't that's a good that was a good setup moment oh the whole setup between the two of them was really good um because you know neve my my girl my precious neve uh my twin twin she really sets it up too where it's like what if you're looking at this the wrong way what if it's not like a curse like how you think yeah and i mean clearly that is why nash took these children in is because they are both quote-unquote monsters yeah and that's that's you know another thing that was kind of set up very well is they called everything that they didn't like a curse yes and there was kind of and obviously there was there was a, a, a nature to the magic system that suggested that that might be how things work but there was also just magical beings in this world fake creatures yeah so not every situation has to specifically be a curse right i was kind of thinking that the whole time that's like the hollowers point of view yes everything's like a curse and everything's like a critter and me (laughs) and i love followers but you know what i'm seeing it's like it's like from that point of view yeah then, yeah, these things wouldn't be good. Whereas from the beginning, Cabal just seems like a werewolf. That's not, I mean, I guess like lycanthropy is technically a curse, but it's not. I take it. Not traditional, the kind of, oh, someone put a curse on you kind of yeah. per- curse, right? Yeah. 
Um. So. So yeah. I. I. I re- This book does a really good job of using that. Like. Like it. It. Because it, it never says at all, or even strongly hints at the fact that you know some of these things might be wrong until other characters start to think it. Yeah. Um. But it kind of uses your own experience to make you have those questions at the back of your head anyway. Yeah. Which is really masterful. Absolutely. I, I, I completely agree. Um, and that's something I couldn't say in the non-spoiler section, but that's a big theme here at Genre Junkies that you and I both love is, um, you know, what does it mean to be human? What is mm-hmm. a monster? What What is human? Is it, you know, like that's something we really love. And I feel like in the second book, we're going to get some more of that because clearly there's layers. People have layers. Look at Neve. She's a sorceress. Layers. <laughs> We we got layers upon layers here, and we got the priestesses breaking out of their mold a little bit. And having Neve be the, the, the wonderful character that she is worked so well for the story because there's so much prejudice against her. Yeah, when everyone realizes exactly what she is, and um. It's like, how, why, why do you hate sorcerer sorceresses so much? I mean, she seems amazing, pretty amazing, right? I mean, Scott basically married her because he married <laughs> me for sure. Um, just let's have a moment of Neve appreciation. Let's have a moment of Neve appreciation. Neve retrieved a dark bundle from the depths of the fanny pack and shook it out. A black baseball cap with two green lined cat ears attached to the top of it, and the words feline spooky <laughs> between them and this is isn't the isn't the fanny pack cats too i think it's cats and i have a lunch bag that's cats i love cats um she also like she she wonderfully calls people especially tamson out on their shit all the time um so doesn't it creep you out to collect bones like this? I asked. Why would it creep me out? And you've asked. Death is beautiful, and people only fear it because they see it as an end, not the beginning it is. Also, I think the little ones are kind of cute. I mean, <laughs> I mean, look. Um, so, so we love that, because I like dead things. We have a bit of a bone collection. Yep. Um, oh, and then she's talking about, again, one of our favorite things, mushroom and fungi and spores. Uh, Neve looked up at me. Don't be afraid of fungi. There's so much beauty in that decay. Uh, so we appreciate that. Oh, and then this was, if there was ever a time that I jumped up and fist pumped in this book, I looked down. You shouldn't have put yourselves at risk. Too bad, Neve told me. You don't get to decide that. I'm sorry to inform you that despite your best efforts, People care about you, myself included. How many times have we said in books, you do not get to decide who cares about you? That's right. You accept the help. You accept the party. You accept it as it is because you don't get to decide. Oh, I, ref- I felt so justified. I felt so justified. Um. So, yeah, just a moment of beautiful Neve appreciation. Uh, I We're just very lucky that Neve didn't die in this book because apparently it's okay to kill freaking everybody else sure is hey it's just like a good role-playing game you might have to re-roll a character (laughs) so why flee for you so i don't know flee just kind of kind of kicked off like almost like a the paternal instinct that i don't really have Mm -hmm. like i just she was just so cute she's like the only kid right yeah she's well so yeah it's she's also very sad but it's like She's very cute because, you know, she's trying to be like a little thief and she's kind of being tough and she's, you know, she is very much learning from Tamsin, but she's pretending like she's not. Yeah. 
Um, and I just, the way that Tempson treated her made yeah. me, like, endeared me to her even more. Like, Tempson with this kind of rough exterior is kind of letting this little girl in. Um, she's a lot of herself in there. Yeah. You know? And she also is like, has a lot of sadness. Like, she's the only child left. She's only alive because she didn't go to school that day. Um, and she has all of these, these weights put on her because she's supposed to be, one of the priestesses but she hasn't come into her power yet and is she going to come into her power and it's just is her power is her power left just such a great character and it's like how many books have we read that that revolve around that character where that is the main character i mean she's yeah she's the lyra of her own little story that could be written right yeah and so i just like i really i was really interested in her and um i think that that surely was deliberate considering you murdered her you monster do you i mean we're not gonna retcon the deaths right and retcon's not the right word do you think they're gonna get to come back i don't think that the deaths are going to be retconned yeah i think that we're going to meet the characters again in their new iterations like in their reincarnation or their souls i mean their souls are currently trapped in that orb with with Lord Death. So I think I think there's going to be some point when they are going to be not brought back to life but are going to have that are going to have a moment at least of agency still. Yeah. Because, you know, death isn't the end. Absolutely. And that's a big thing about this book and and that's uh, that regeneration sort of thing. Um so we get some wonderful book lover bibliophile stuff we have the library i can pretty much taste and smell mm-hmm. we have library cats we have library cats who they didn't kill the library cat no credit was where credit is due didn't kill the library cat i was remembering that cat and was afraid for that cat when they were going through the tower and now we've got giflet is gonna join them and be a library kitty i'm so excited i love cats so much and i just i just love those cats you just know they all have their own stories and they've all seen some shit Mm. in the library um so we get beautiful descriptions of books and libraries i call shenanigans on you again scott how is the librarian not your favorite character i also really loved the he cared for the children not my favorite character but one of my favorite um elements of the story yeah daedalus or hephaestus made him yeah i i which okay Let's talk about that for just a second. Brilliant. This book very much, I mean, it is about Arthurian legend, but I really like this world that she's created where that's not the only fantastical thing that is, that, you know, is, you know, lost to only those who have the true sight. The fact that, that, you know, the Greek pantheon appears to be based on reality, Mm -hmm. that, you know, that's, there's so much that can be done in this world. Yes. Even after this duology is done that focuses around Avalon and Lord Death and all of that. Right. Because like, there's other guilds. There's other guilds. There's the Cistern. And there's other there's and there's there's other pantheons. I mean, yeah. who's to say that, you know, these same characters or maybe even different characters who who, you know, are living in this world can't go to Olympus. Yeah. And you know, so it like looking for something. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love the way they travel through a vein. By the way, I thought that was all really cool. Like, like I like that. Like, just the way the hollers get around and stuff makes a lot of sense. Um, 
There's a quote that I wanted to share. A library was a home to those who dreamt of better places, and this one was no exception. If that quote does not make your heart flutter, that's exactly what they do. That's exactly how they operate. Oh, <laughs> um, lots of so uh, mythology, all that stuff tied in. Um, wonderful, um, delicious pagany things. Um, this was a favorite quote of mine. From what I'd read, they took considerable pleasure in using the bones of those whose burgeoning religion had violently destroyed the ancient pagan faiths. I thought that was so cute. Um, I am endlessly fascinated by sorceress culture. Um, you know what's crazy is we just had Beltane on May 1st, and there's actually a Beltane reference in the book. So that was like, I don't know, that was just kind of funny synchronicity. That That's always cool. Do and you think we're going to get more information about the sorceresses? Yes, I do. Um, but let me also mention when we're still talking about mythology too in there, um, the story of the Holly King and the uh, Oak King, which like that's a story I love a lot. And it's like, so like seeing that like brought up and, and talked about, I was like, oh my God, like it, it made my heart really happy. So the sorceresses, yes, because we've got to get to the bottom of this in book two. We know that the high priestess and Morgan were in a relationship. They were in love. And there's been this huge rift between like, are the sorceresses selfish or were they or are they just badasses? Which, you know, and then like, how are they going to play a part in this? Because now this evil is in our world, you know, like it's permeated. And I don't think the sorceresses can just let that happen. Like, I think that's going to be very bad for them. So I think they're going to really have to get in on the action here. Um, speaking of sorceresses and sorceress culture, the immortalities. And I love the way I examine them. That is a great them. name for them. It's perfect. It's perfect. I mean, the, these like the idea of writing in a journal and writing down your life and writing down your knowledge. But nobody even really understands how it's done, yeah, too. It's like, it, it, you know, becomes eternal. It's ah. just really, really cool. So I have a, I have a, um, I have a theory. Okay. And I want to, I want to run it past you. Sure. Uh, so do, so, okay. Arthur's body was kept alive for when Arthur was needed by Britain again. Yes. Right? Now, I, I feel like that's very prophecy-ish, right? Yeah. Do you think that that was all kind of, you know, that was all kind of BS and this is a, an example of her just, th you know, throwing out the, the, the magical, you know, the, the throwing away our precious stories uh, just to do it or do you think that this is actually what his body was being preserved for after all um that th that somehow this is part of the prophecy and this needed to happen to make something happen that's very interesting i think what i love about alexander is i could in her writing is i can really see it going either way i can really see it just being like well we've eaten him <laughs> and he's done um which is that really funny like well what's plan b like type of attitude right that she talks about but um i mean because it could be you know maybe this was all you know him coming back to save britain maybe that was all a giant misunderstanding or like a mistranslation of something um 
you know, are we sure that Tamsin isn't Arthur? Like, we're doing reincarnation here. So maybe Arthur actually had passed before, before Lord Death took his body and Tamsin was reincarnated. Hmm. I could see so many outcomes. Yeah. I'm having a hard time picking one path. I think it's like, this is for sure going to be it. How about you? I, You know, I agree with you. You're right. And um, that's actually kind of, kind of a neat way to write a story like that too i'm sure that she knows exactly where this is going it's yeah. probably already written for goodness sake right? right but even if it wasn't like it is left open-ended where there's a lot of real realistic conclusions this could lead to right well i mean like what's emrys up to you know i mean i think i think what he's doing is more complicated than just taking the ring to go save his mom yeah but I have a feeling that he is going to take the ring and he deliberately did that because he needs to take the ring into hiding. That's what I think. I think that he knows that this is this is like the th- this is the thing. Everybody wants it. So the MacGuffin or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's not a MacGuffin, but you know what I mean? Everybody's after this. So I think he knows like I'm not putting anybody else at risk. I'm not telling anybody where I'm going because that's how everybody can be safe. I guess. I don't I I feel like after after the trust that they built and everything that happened, he could probably have told the truth, Tamsin, whatever it was, but Well, right now she just thinks he's doing the more noble thing and going after his mom. I mean, it's sad for her because she always feels picked last and left behind, but she thinks like, okay, well, that is important. And that he used her. Is that how she feels? I don't think that that's true. No, not at all. Like I said, I think he's doing something to keep everybody in the the ring itself safe. Um, I did like that beyond a poor little rich boy story, um, he is actually an abused person and so is his mom. And I thought that was really powerful because it's like you can have so much more compassion and you can understand like why he was so caustic and and everything and um you know we we do like a good enemies to lovers in this house i I thought he was a fun character i liked how charming he was too i love magical i love every sorceress (laughs) mentioned (laughs) the the sort the 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 priestesses are so nice oh yeah i love the priestesses they're so well done because like you have kind of the quiet one and you have the really rambunctious one you've got catriona who's just Catriona, is that her name? Catriona. Catriona, yeah. Who's like so, like, I mean, sad, tragic. Can I trust way. her? Can I not trust yeah. her? Um, but like, they're just so, I, I, they, to have that, to have that like uniqueness amongst them. Like, it's yeah. so easy to have an order of priestesses be very, like, all kind of towing the line, at least publicly, of this is how we all are and we're all of one mind. And to have them all be very different, it's it yeah. feels very kind of covenish, you know? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's very, very covenish, very witchy and wonderful. Um, They're like the you know, the warriors and the kumbayas all mixed together. And then we have the sorceresses, which are just like, just incredibly bad bitches, and I love them. Um, So... We know that Tamsin had the run-in with the white lady where her heart got inky, but she didn't die. So that was already a big clue that, okay, something like with her, right? Like right. that she's not like human. So she could be a reincarnation of, you know, somebody, Arthur, mm-hmm. Morgan. She she could be like that where it's like she's, she's not recognized as like a sorceress or whatever because she's something like so much more. Mm-hmm. Or, or what do you think she oh, is? Oh, maybe she's Morgan. 
Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That actually, yeah. Um, But she could be like, I mean, she could be a creature, which is fine. But I feel like she's something kind of more. But again, and and I don't necessarily believe in curses the same way that Nash has taught about curses. But yeah, what? But but I feel like if she if her thing is that she's a reincarnation, like what is what is breaking that curse? What does the Ring of Dispel do in that situation? Like yeah. I'm very interested to see why Nash feels there is something wrong with her. Right. How is she a ticking time bomb? What is this? And I do want, of course, for her and Cabell to come to grips and to happy terms with, you know, their human side and their non-human side. Oh, that is actually very interesting. I could see the second book by the end. Possibly she realizes that maybe Lord Death is right. Yeah. Maybe Lord Death is actually the good guy. Uh, I don't think so. Mm. I don't think so. He's he's breaking up the pa- the matriarchy too much for me to think he's a good guy. Cabell seems to think there's some there's some logic behind his teaching. <sighs> well, it's he's been he's looking for a father figure and he put the whammy on him. No, no. Although if I can just say like again, I love the priestesses and even they have to even they admit towards the end, right? There's so much there's so much dogmatism. Yeah. In all of these different factions of this is the way that we do it because this is, this the, is way. the way that we're supposed to do it and this is the way we were we were always done. we were told to do it. Okay. Well, you were also told that King Arthur was going to come back alive when Britain needed him and um yeah, he instead he was possessed by Lord Death. So, um maybe all of those shouldisms aren't really true. Yeah. And so that stubbornness as far as, you know, Nash thinking everything that's bad is a curse and the priestess is thinking that they can't fight back for any reason because it's bad for some reason. Right. Maybe, you know, maybe Lord Death, maybe there's something there. Right. I'm sure, you know, Nash has done a lot to protect Tamsin, too, from whatever. I'm sure if, you know, she knew the full scope of whatever she was, she'd probably have a huge target on her back. Like, you know, he obviously loved the kids very much. He just, um, he's just a hollower. <laughs> he just has his way. Where do you think he was? How did he set up that skelly? What, 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 what was he up to? And why did he set the whole thing up to just, like, why, why couldn't he be present and suddenly show up at the end it's it's all very strange but it's wonderful yeah yeah i i i don't know how i feel about nash i I don't know if i trust him oh i fully trust nash with my in nash i trust very convenient for nash to show back up that's all i have to say no i'm sure he was stuck somewhere i'm sure he ran afoul of something and whatever they did in avalon probably shook him (laughs) loose from wherever he was um so I can't wait to hear what happens to everybody, especially Grifflet. I cannot wait to see Grifflet welcomed into the Library Cat uh, Society. Um, I hope the librarian steals snacks from everybody's locker to feed Grifflet extra. <laughs> so this was definitely a 10 bones out of 10 bones for me. Bones. I am giving this a 10 bones out of 10 as well. This is going on to my short list of possible book of the years. Yes, I can this see that. Is, um, this is the, the beginning of a fantasy epic that I've been waiting for for a while. Yeah. Um, it 
you know, I really, apparently really do like these kind of darker fantasy stories. Um, I'm, I'm very torn on if I'm happy that it's a duology because I only have to wait for one book, or if I'm kind of heartbroken that this isn't going to be a 12 book series. And maybe I'm on it. Maybe there'll be spinoffs. We don't know. I, I don't know. That said, um, she seems to be very busy with many stories and has many ideas. I don't think that she wants to be tied into a 12 book series. <laughs> But I don't think, even if this is a duology, I don't think that the second book will be the last book in this world because there's too much potential. Sorry, maybe she could just write them for us. Yeah. Just like send us little little bits, little nuggies of what's happening with our people. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. A special thank you again to our interview tonight, Alexandra Bracken. An absolute pleasure. such such a cool person i'm sandra i'm scott please keep reading past your bedtime 